So here at Get Ready to Rock, we're saying hello to somebody who we've we've wanted to catch up with for some time, actually. <laughs> and uh, we're saying hello to Chris Uzi. Hello, Chris. Hi, mate. How are you doing? Oh, nice to talk to you. And Chris is... Uh, well, something of a legend in terms of melodic rock since the uh, late 80s, early 1990s. And he's currently fronting the band called Snake Charmer. Now, we'll talk about that, Chris, uh, in a moment's time. But let's talk about your new album, because as we speak, it's uh, officially the release date of Rhyme and Reason. It's out via Escape Music. What gave you the incentive to make a solo record? I think I'm right in saying this is the first that's come out under your name, so it's effectively perhaps your first solo album. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I did something like it um, a few years back with a band called The Distance, which, um, when I say a band, it was uh, myself and a guy called Kenny Loney over in uh, Canada. I think that's the closest to a kind of solo record that I've done in the past, but yeah, this. This was just something that I felt, I just thought the time was right for it. After putting out maybe up to nine, ten albums with Heartland over the years, um, I just didn't feel it was a good time to put another Heartland record out. And it's always good to kind of write with different people. Um, you can get yourself in a little bit of a rut if you write with the same people constantly. So I, I just wanted to kind of put it out that I was looking for someone, someone else to write with um, and do something different, really. So, so you had the incentive to make this album under your own name, but how? What, what provided the catalyst for this? You know, what brought? Um, you know, we can talk about the musicians on the album, but what, what brought everything together? Um, well, I just went through a period where, um, as I say, I was looking for someone else to write with. Um, we talked about the record company, and I talked about all kinds of things. Um, maybe writing with Steve Overland from FM is something that I'll probably be doing in the future. That was one of the, uh, the things that might have happened. It just felt like a good time for me to have more of a say in the type of songs that I wanted to record. I wanted the things to go a little bit heavier. Um, and I just wanted to explore doing something different. And the record companies seemed to think that it was, uh, it was a good time to do that. Your um, albums that came out sort of post-1994, really, came out on Escape Music. So you did have that connection. And, um, but you've got some great names on this album. Mike uh, Slammer, of course, from uh, X of City Boy. Uh, and Tommy Denander, you know, um, seems to be on a lot of melodic rock albums coming out of Sweden these days. And, of course, your colleague Neil Murray. Yeah, I mean, they, they, obviously, initially, I, uh, I I talked with Tommy. Um, he sent me uh, four or five backing tracks over, and they, they just blew me away. The man is extremely talented, there's no doubt about it. I hadn't heard much about him, which, um, you know, having, having then listened to his backing tracks, I'm amazed I didn't know more about him, really, over the years. Um, and I was just blown away with it. Uh, started writing, I guess, in summer 2009, some, sometime around then, and then went over to record with him in 2010, and we got like a house on fire. Um, I asked Neil whether he wanted to get involved on the bass, um, and he was great about it. He, he listened to the demos, and he, he was keen to do it. Um, can't remember who suggested um, Greg Bissonette on drums. I think it may have been uh, Escape Music, or it may have come through Tommy. But I was really, really pleased that he he liked the sound of uh, the recordings that were made and wanted to get involved. 
And of course, later on, my Christmas cake became involved, and I just kind of put the icing on the cake for it for me. So, was there anything that um, you know guided the style of the album? Um, were you very much led by those early backing tracks, or did you have your own idea, Chris, about how you wanted it to sound? Well, we talked a little bit about the way it was going to sound. Um, I talked with uh, Skate Music about the way I wanted the record to sound. Um, and I suppose that kind of uh, gave them an idea of the kind of musician I was looking to write with. Because over the years, I've always written pretty much with a guitarist. Um, and yeah, once I heard, I, I guess Tommy then would, uh, would have talked to Escape. He sent over, he did send over actually quite a mix of stuff. There was, uh, there was some heavier stuff in there. And there's all, but I mean, I've always liked the melodic side of, of rock as well and um, the two things go kind of hand in hand for me and Tommy just fitted the bill perfectly the stuff is heavy enough it's got energy which I love um, it's got drive but it's also got so much room for melody um, and I, I just love it when those two things come together started off actually playing the track The Mother of Invention which is the first track on the album I think that demonstrates just exactly what you've said. Now, um, let's let's move back in time to Heartland. I, I became aware of the band uh, when I bought several 12-inch singles in the early 1990s, and you were signed to A&M. Um, tell us a bit about that, because obviously things were looking up for... You'd been in a band called um, Virginia Wolf, which I think has gone down again in legend as uh, difficult to, to obtain the... Uh, I think it was one album, was it, or maybe two? Titled Virginia Woolf, and then an album called Push. And, and from that, of course, you developed. How did uh, Heartland develop then? Well, the first band that I was ever in, uh, I guess as a teenager, was a band called Monroe, going back a long, long time now, uh, late 70s, uh, early 80s, um, was uh, Virginia Woolf, and then straight after that, uh, sorry, that was 1980, Virginia Woolf, but so the first band I was ever in, basically, I just started singing in was a band called Monroe, and, they, and the guitarist from that band was a guy called uh, Gary Sharp. Um, so he'd been a friend since I was, I guess, 15 or something. Um, and I just went, I just kind of met up with him again, almost out of the blue. Um, I wanted to do some demoing of stuff that I had, and he had his own home studio. So the two things kind of just, we kind of drifted back together, if you like. Uh, and that uh, culminated in the debut Harlan record then um, in 1990, I suppose it was, uh, produced by uh, Jim Barton. And the whole thing kind of just went on from there, really. So were there, were there great sort of aspirations for the band? Because you, you received quite a big push, didn't you? I seem to remember at the time. A&M and Records were ex- extremely keen on the band um, right from the beginning. We were really lucky to get the right kind of, the right record company behind us and the right amount of backing. Um, and when Jim Barton came in to produce the record, I mean, it, it, it was almost like an open, and it, it seems ridiculous in this day and age, but it was almost like an open wallet. It was, you know, whatever you want to do with this band to record them, it's okay with us, you know. Um, and that just doesn't happen anymore. It just doesn't happen anymore. We were so lucky with that one. Um, but it was a little bit of all eggs in one basket kind of thing. Um, quite a big budget went into the recording of that record. And there was always the feeling that it was it was going to be all or nothing. You know, that album was either going to rock it or it wasn't. And uh, it was no real surprise to us. 
um, when A&M didn't want to go forward with a, with uh, a second album after the first album um, didn't really get at the time uh, I, I just a, a big enough sales to be honest with you um, but it seems strange now looking back because that album now has kind of grown in people's minds uh, in people's minds and it's become to some people a bit of a classic uh, of that sort of a genre but uh, but at the time it was it was you know rock music was very difficult to sell as it as it can be now yeah I mean, of course, you'll remember as well around that time. I mean, you had bands like Dare, didn't you, from the UK? Um, and no end of bands from the States. And, of course, then grunge kicked in and everybody sort of uh, hit the decks, really, didn't they? It was um, it was just bad timing. But, yeah, I do remember the... Um, certainly had some rather impressive-looking... Um, certainly the 12-inch singles, because that, that was the era, wasn't it, for packaging, really? And they did a good job with it, there's no doubt about it. I've got no complaints um, with the way that we were handled by A&M at that time. They had a lot of belief in the band. Get ready to rock radio! Now, what happened, Chris, after Heartland? I mean, you evidently got into session work, but um, and, and we should say, of course, we'll come on to talk about the albums you made in the sort of mid to late 1990s and beyond for Escape Music. And in different guises, they were really Heartland albums. In fact, they were called Heartland. But what what was happening in the immediate aftermath of Heartland in the early 90s? Yeah, there was a period. I mean, it was quite a low period for me. I think whenever you've you've had that kind of support from a major company um, and it goes down, um, there's a period of kind of having to dust yourself off and you're wondering what the heck you're going to do next and... And that can be a difficult period, and it was a difficult period. Um, I even considered at, uh, at various stages in turning my back on it. Um, I'm so I'm obviously I'm glad I didn't. Um, so yeah, there was a pretty dark period of, a, of probably a couple of years where I was um, escape music came forward and wanted to release some demos that we'd written for a, a possible second um, Heartland record which came out as uh, wide open on, I think, Long Island Records and then around 94 on Escape Music. So yeah, they came forward, and, and in a way, that kind of... Uh, the fact that, all right, there were only a small record company, especially in those days, but there was, again, a lot of faith in what I'd done in the past. And, and when people kind of approach you and they have your best interests at heart like that, it kind of makes you think, well, you know what, if other people are prepared to make the effort, then I should be prepared to make the effort. When I met up with uh, Steve Morris, uh, the guitarist who, obviously, I did the rest of the Heartland albums with. Right. Now, most recently, uh, coming more up to date, you've hooked up with what was called Monsters of Rock with Mickey Moody and uh, Neil Murray, ex of um, you know the early formation of Whitesnake. And this seems to have morphed now into the band called Snake Charmer. Uh, I should mention that you've got a support slot with Uriah Heap in December. We're talking now in uh, November 2011. And um, you have a, a showcase in London at the Dean Street Studios. It's an invite only um, to launch the band, I presume. And I, I gather you've also got new material. Yeah, it's been really good. It's, uh, it's gone quite quickly. In 2000 and well, last year, um, we signed up with a new management company, uh, QED, Q Management. Um, didn't do, we haven't done many gigs this year. It's all been about 
um, writing and recording. We've got two new tracks now ready to go. They've just been mixed, finished yesterday. Uh, we've recorded a couple of the old classic tracks. I mean, more as a way of um, of getting some interest for gigs next year. So we're we're hoping to do a lot more gigs next year. But we're look now kind of tentatively looking towards uh, writing and releasing an album. I hope next year. Certainly makes it more relevant, does it? You know, for audiences, because it's um, there's always a bit of a reaction, isn't there, to something like this? As like a, I mean, it's a very good tribute, obviously, because you've got people who played in original bands. But it's only when that new material comes through that people really take notice, don't they? You know, absolutely, I, yeah. absolutely. I mean, it, it was never meant really to be a, a tribute kind of band. Obviously, it was two of the members, the original members of White Snake, and. Uh, the majority of the uh, of the songs that were playing live uh, were co-written by uh, Mickey Moody, so it, I think it's relevant in that in, to, to that extent. But I guess until you introduce live music into it, it doesn't become a band in its own right. No, that's right. Now, now, how did you get involved in the first place with... I remember Monsters of Rock, you did a gig in um, at the Cambridge Rock Festival, I think you mentioned 2010. That may well have been one of your first gigs, actually, but, um, you know, certainly a, a big gig. But um, how, you know, before that, how did you all get together? Um, well, I think there'd been other bands um, around the same sort of uh, sort of idea beforehand that I wasn't particularly aware of uh, with Mickey and Neil. Because um, we should mention there, um, just to cut you off a little bit, Chris, um, M3. That was going around about 2004, 2005, yeah, I was kind of vaguely aware that I, I hadn't met Nicky or Neil at the time. Um, I just got a phone call um, from an old mate of mine who used to be in the first band that I was ever in, a guy called Pete Dutton, who now does the uh, Outfront Sound um, for the band, and has his own production company. And uh, he, he said that my name had come up when they were looking for, uh, to put a band together, um, and that they'd be interested in having me come down to a, a rehearsal. So I went down to John Henry's rehearsal rooms in London about January 2010 and met up with the rest of the guys, Harry, Harry James, great drummer on the Thunder, uh, Laurie Weisfield, uh, obviously Nick, uh, Neil and Mickey and um, and it just gelled, the whole thing just gelled and it was fun, you know, I mean, having spent a lot of time over the years writing and recording more than really playing live and I've, I've not played live enough for me, for my kind of wants. Um, so it was just a lot of fun to get in a rehearsal room with musicians of that sort of standard, of that caliber. And, uh, but, but not take it over seriously, you know, do it for the fun of doing it. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I knew pretty much immediately from that rehearsal that, uh, that the band could go out and, and have a lot of fun playing classic songs that, uh, that are relevant to, to the band. Um, what's been the reaction to some of those, to, to, you know, from the audience really hearing some of those classic tracks again? I mean, that represents quite a challenge for you as a vocalist because, at least at the moment, you've been um, there's a fair bit of White Snake in the set list. H- how did you approach that, Chris? You know, in terms of interpretation. Strangely, I think other people worry about that more than I do. I think at the end of the day, when I when I ever I step up to the mic to sing any song. I'm not, I mean, obviously, if it's someone else's material, I'm aware of the past that that song has. But when I step up to the mic, I'm basically thinking, how do I get the best out of this song with my voice? 
how do I interpret the lyrics and how do I, you know what I mean? I, I, it's all about trying to get the best out of a good song, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it, although it'd be silly to say that, I'm not aware that people in the audience are waiting, probably, you know, white big fans of old and are waiting for me to open my, open my mouth in, on the first line. But once you once you step up to the mic, you're thinking about the song. You're not thinking about people's expectations. I think if you were, the job would be made 50 times more difficult. So for me, it's about walking to the mic or read when I'm recording. It's about just getting the best out of the song that I can possibly get with my voice, rather than trying, uh, you know, to to come up to someone else's expectations. To be honest, I think what you're saying really is be, being yourself, isn't it? Because it, it's too easy, probably, to um to try and emulate others, and uh, that wouldn't be natural, would it? You know? Not at all. I mean, if, no. if I go back to, you know, when I was in my late teens, perhaps that sort of period of time, Coverdale was a, um, a really big influence on me as a vocalist. I had, I guess, like a holy trinity of, of vocalists, Paul Rogers, Ian Gillen, Coverdale, and, and, and they were really important to kind of the way that I developed as a singer, but once you get sort of beyond your, your 20s and you, or your mid-20s, you're listening to music less because you're playing more and you're writing more and you develop your own style. Yes. And uh, you mentioned influences. You mentioned Whitesnake. Now, that would have probably coincided with um, some classic Whitesnake of that period. So uh, who else were you listening to at that time, you know, when you were first getting into music, really, on a more serious level? Well, I, I, like a lot, of, uh, a lot of musicians, I, I was kind of influenced by an older, an, an older sibling. I had an older brother. It was bringing records into the house when I was, I don't know, 13, 14. Uh, and a lot of those records were kind of, certainly on the rock side of things, I was getting, I was listening to a lot of Deep Purple by the time I was 14, 15. Um, I, I, I loved Free, uh, Free Bad Company, those kind of bands. But also lots of other, lots of other stuff, lots of other different influences. There's a couple of the albums from the Tudes that I was, absolutely head over heels with at the time a heck of a lot of stuff black sabbath a lot of the usual suspects really but uh judith priest a lot and mostly obviously selfishly listening to it as a vocalist so a lot of the uh, a lot of the bands that i listened to obviously i was attracted to them because of some great strong vocalists yes did you mention the tubes there yeah there's a, there's a couple of albums that i really that i really like the inside out Side principle, I think it's called, would be one of them. Um, again, just strong vocals, strong melodic vocals, uh, but with attitude. I mean, the, the, the studio stuff was, to me, it was just, it was crafted so well. This is radio for the internet age. Get ready to rock radio. It's, I mean, it's fascinating, you know, when you talk to a performer who's come through the sort of classic period, let's say, um, late 80s, early 90s, especially. Uh, in terms of record label promotion and you know bigger budgets, but how are you going about uh, promoting this music these days? Because I have to say, this is one of the best melodic rock albums I've heard this year. Um, you know, the best of its kind, really. Good songwriting, great singing, of course, and uh, fantastic music musicianship. Um, but there must be a fear that it just merges into one of many of this genre that's out there. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is the, uh, there aren't the budgets um, for big promotions anymore. I think the, the, the most you can kind of hope for is that you basically just keep at it and keep the 
standards as high as we possibly can. And I, I'm really pleased with this album. Um, I'm really proud of it. it uh, I, I really don't want it, obviously, to to merge in with the rest. Um, I'm really hoping at some point that we can get some live uh, some live dates out of this record. I'm determined one way or the other um, to play some of this stuff live because it's it's crying out for that to be done. Um, logistically, it uh, it becomes more difficult when you've got uh, obviously members of this band living, you know, on different continents. Basically, I mean, I'd love to get uh, Flamer over, do some live dates. Uh, we talked about the possibility of doing that. So, I mean, you never know. You've just got to keep uh, you've just got to keep at it. And I, I and I do hope to get this stuff on stage at some point. And certainly, I'll be doing. Uh, I'll be doing, you know, I'm looking to write another within the next, uh, I'll start probably six months from now, something like that, writing, writing another in the same vein. And I hope with, um, with at least a very similar lineup, if not every single member the same. I mean, it's great to hear you say that. It would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to play those songs live, you know? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, obviously, I'm also in, in, a, in a great position from that point of view, in that I have so many songs to. Uh, to choose from to play live from the Harland, from the Harland records. Um, obviously, at this stage, you're only looking at, uh, at, at 12 new songs for the solo album. But uh, you know, you play six of those live and uh, and throw in some of the Harland stuff, and I, I think it would be a, an enjoyable set to play, and I hope an enjoyable set to come and see. Um, you know, people will hear you playing with with Snake Charmer, and then hopefully investigate your previous albums and especially the most recent one you know it has that effect yeah i mean i hope it works for for both for both acts um that's that's usually the way it works um i don't like doing too many things at once because it worries me that you kind of have to drop some standards in in what you're doing but the two things are are quite different um so i i i don't see any problems doing the two the two things in tandem and I hope the two things will complement each other now um, just to conclude this year Escape Music for we've mentioned because you know this is the new album is on this uh, label you've also recorded several albums as Heartland with Steve Morris who you've mentioned on guitar now this year came a, a two disc compilation um, Travelling Through Time and that includes tracks from the album you mentioned earlier, Wide Open, 1994, which I think I'm right in saying was the intended second album follow-up, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. A, it was basically a bunch of uh, uh, demos ready for a second record if we were, if we decided to go in and do that. You know, you mentioned Steve Morris. He's had a parallel life with um, the likes of Ian Gillan, uh, particularly his solo work, but. Has that sort of stymied the development of Heartland really since the late nineties? Be- because he's had these commitments, you haven't been able to focus on, you know, the band totally. I think I don't know really. I, I think over the years, Heartland almost I don't know. It had a life of its own in that it it became more of a studio, of a studio band. Um, and the band was often it changed. The band changed quite a lot over, over the years. Different people coming in, in and out, um, which can be a good thing. In, the, in that it's great to play with other people, but it also dilutes sometimes the feel of a band. Um, and over the years, Heartland has become to feel a little bit like a studio band for me, almost like a project instead of a band, which isn't wasn't the way I really wanted it to be in the beginning. 
and whilst I'm proud of the records that we've put out, I really don't feel that um, that we were out there chafing chafing those records up. Not enough gigs. Um, certainly would have liked to have been out playing live more. But it just kind of grew into more of a studio thing. And uh, I suppose you're trying to keep busy. You're constantly trying to write. You and then the record company are looking for another record, and you can get on a little bit of a roller coaster. And before you know it, you're nine albums down down the line, and wondering what to do next. So I, mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that there will never be another Harlan record, but certainly I'd like to be involved with something that was a little bit more hands-on from a live point of view, and a little bit more of a band situation. Get ready to rock radio music you want to hear. Because it, it's again, it's really fascinating, Chris, what you were saying about um, you know perhaps you haven't done as much live work as you would have liked over the years, yeah, and certainly Snake Charm is going to push you right into uh, literally into the spotlight. But that's another dimension that I'm sure you know you'll relish that sort of opportunity. It's like uh, another aspect, isn't it? Really, definitely. I, I mean, it's great also from a vocal point of view. You, it's a different technique. You know, there are different techniques to singing live. Than singing in the studio, and they're pretty subtle. Like, you know, an audience perhaps might not see those changes, but it is a different. It's a different. Uh, it's a different thing, and just uh, it's a jo- it's a really joyful thing in the studio. You're constantly thinking about the, the, the minor details. The devil really is in the detail in the studio. Live, you can kind of let your hair down and just and, and move pretty much with the spirit of the thing, rather than you know take a scalpel to everything and it that is that is a joy no doubt about it and i'm hoping i do a heck of a lot more of that i've never i've never actually been seeing people laugh when i walk into the studio I, to be honest with you i can't wait to walk out of here again it's it's quite uh you see i don't know you're, sta- you're staring at a, a, a mixing desk it's it doesn't fill you with uh it doesn't fill you with joy you, you get in the studio you record the thing and you hope that that will lead on to actually being able to put that, that music in front of people. Obviously, there's nothing like getting halfway through a set and the guitarist is kicking into a solo and you can step back and you can look at the audience. And if that's an audience with, with smiles on their face, it might sound corny, but that really is what makes it worthwhile. You kind of feel like you're doing something that, uh, that you know, that's bringing a bit of joy. And, and, that, and that is great. And then that, that pushes you on to... Uh, you know, to do another record in the hope that you can do that again. And there's not been quite enough of that in, in what I've been doing recently. We say to you, Chris, from all of us here at Get Ready to Rock, thank you for your time talking to us. And most of all, good luck in the coming months with both the solo album and Snake Charmer. Thanks, mate. been a pleasure.